Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Chris DeNicola. Chris is a healthcare entrepreneur working in the field of addiction services. I stumbled onto Chris's organization after reading about a new barbershop in Nashua, New Hampshire, that was run by recovering addicts and catering in particular to those in recovery. It turned out Rise Barbershop was just one of a number of ventures Chris is responsible for. I spoke with Chris at his Process Recovery Center, one of two treatment facilities he and his partners own. They also operate sober living houses, which provide safe and supportive housing communities for recovering addicts with a total of 170 beds in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. What is particularly interesting about Chris and his partners is that they are also all recovering addicts. So the businesses are a manifestation of their passion to help others who have suffered from the same challenges. This is one of the longer interviews I've done, so I'll be posting two versions. This is the abridged version. If you'd like to listen to the full-length version, please see our website, healthleaderforge.org, for the link. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Chris DeNicola. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, f- I found out about your organization through uh, an article in the National Telegraph talking about your Rise Barbershop. And I uh, had a chance to have my hair cut this morning by Seth, one of the gentlemen that's working there. And they were passionate about the business and passionate about the services that you're providing here in Nashua. So excited to, to learn a little bit about kind of your background and, and how this has all come about. Absolutely. So I don't, I'm not sure where to really start. So we're going to be talking about addiction services and, yep. and kind of some of the, the different services that you're providing, you know, in Nashua. And so how did you come to be involved in, in these kinds of services? Oh, so, I mean, to essentially to go back to the beginning, how I ended up here, it's, it's such like a, well, first and foremost, I'm an addict in long-term recovery. Uh, a lot of people don't like the term addict. I'm comfortable with it. So I suffer from substance use disorder, which is the appropriate term to use. And so I've been clean for 15 years. I've been in long-term recovery for 15 years. And um, what essentially led me to this point is my journey through recovery and uh, my journey through a lot of my experiences in life. And, and just being young, I was 20, 21 years old when I was first, when I finally got this, uh, close to 22 years old, and I had been struggling with substance use from a, a very young age. And so I came into recovery um, naive, uh, ignorant to what it was that I suffered from. And I just had like a lot of learning and a lot, a lot of stuff that, uh, that I hadn't experienced. I don't know how far or how deep you want me to get into like my story. Or, yeah, I'd like but, to hear it. I'd like to, so when did you start how did you how did you get in, into substance use? How, how did that come about? So my generation, I call, is a part of the Purdue Farmer generation, which was the oxycotton boom. Okay. Um, that's when OCs were just everywhere. When I was in high school, I believe it was like my freshman sophomore year. There was a lot of people doing oxycotton, and um, 
it was the first drug that really came around that really didn't have uh like obviously there was like the stoners and then there was like the there was like what you would call a druggie and then there was just like all these different groups and then like oxycontins came around they were kind of like everybody was uh dabbling with them and so me i was always an experimenter from a from a young age and um yeah. And so I went through like my marijuana phases. I went through like alcohol. Yeah. I I was a very resistant child. I think a lot of that stemmed from looking back in retrospect. I, I mean, I had a father. My father was in, in prison my whole life from the age of well, was 10, 12 years. He got out of jail when I was 18. I was raised by my stepfather and, um, I don't know. I had like a lot of like internal pain and stuff that was going on. So I was always seeking out something outside of myself for relief. And uh, I found myself kind of um, gravitating towards like all the different groups of like, I, I didn't belong to any one specific stoner, pothead, hallucinogenic, um, jock. I was kind of in the mix of all of them. I didn't do well in school. I was the epitome of... Um, that statement he has so much potential that's that was like the statement about me like my whole life if he could only if he would just uh he has so much potential so much potential and um so i was the potential guy a lot of that and and, and i had a loving and caring mother um sometimes i got sent to to go live with different family members in different places to see if they could help me maybe if they changed the environment changed the school chris could because I had flashes of like, uh, I could do well for certain lengths of time. Then they put me on, I remember they put me on medication for attention deficit disorder, which it did work when I took it appropriately. But then eventually I started to abuse the ADD medication and i um, pretty sure you're not supposed to sniff it. Uh, oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, and so I ended up in New Jersey, Florida, all different types of family members. All while you were in high school? All while I was in high school. I went to... Uh, wow three different high schools. So my freshman year, I was at one high school. My sophomore year, I was at another high school. My junior year, I was at a high school in New Jersey. And then my mother let me come back my senior year. And by that time, I had been dabbling in a lot of the opioids, but never too much. And when I came back home, my senior year was when it really exploded. And then once I got introduced like completely to oxys and started to to do opioids on a daily basis everything changed for me so that was the the full scale transition from me to like severe active addiction was there a trigger for that or it just was it so you said it exploded are you saying it exploded in you or it was like exploding like around you everybody was it was the perfect storm so it exploded okay. in me and exploded around me so that it was just so accessible at the time and uh it was all around and um and it was highly addictive and we never know the full extent. I remember the first time I experienced being what they call dope sick. Uh, I, I didn't understand what was happening to me because your body becomes chemically dependent. I didn't ever had experience with being like chemically dependent on something to the point where I was physically ill. And uh, I remember I had another friend that was, was also abusing opiates. He told me, he's like, oh, you're dope sick. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, I just got the flu. You know, because when you when you when you're chemically dependent on something, when you when you you take yourself off of them, you, you so when you're dope is when you're actually dope sick, what they call dope sick, you become physically sick, like sweating, restless. You have extreme bowel movements. I'm um, throwing up. It, it's it's pretty it awful. awful. Yeah. yeah, it is awful. 
I remember him telling me, all you have to do is get high again and it'll go away. And I'm like, what? He's like, watch, I promise. And he's like, yeah, do some. And I remember doing some and the feeling of relief, like all my symptoms was like the magical cure to what I had perceived as like this terrible flu. And all of a sudden it was gone. And then that was the change of everything. That's when it became, I was now physically dependent on something because now I knew that this equals this. So the, the use of this will make this go away. And, and that was the, the complete change in the direction of everything. And uh, Were you still enjoying it at that point? Or, so was it both, it'll make me sick if I don't do it, but I also enjoy it? Or, or did, uh, yeah, no, I'd be lying if I said at that point I wasn't, en- uh, I wasn't enjoying it because the repercussions weren't as severe yet. Um, obviously, I, was living, I wasn't living the greatest life, but as far as what I perceived as like someone that's like strung out on drugs and committing crimes and all this stuff, I hadn't hit that point yet. And I didn't realize how, how fast I was about to hit that point. The physical dependency, when that takes over with the mixture of now the obsession and compulsion for something, so the, the mental dependency, it was, it was a different animal that was born inside of me. And, and then that just stretched out for three, almost four years of just getting worse and worse and worse. And I became that perception of what I thought an addict was. You know, I became that, someone that was untrustworthy, committing crimes, anything necessary to get the, the next one. It's like my life went on pause and, and the progression of me as, as a human being went nowhere and my life went in regression. Like it just started to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I was further away from the people that I love, further away from friends that had gone to school. It's like everybody else's life was like getting better. They were moving forward and they were doing all this stuff. And I was stuck in like a 17 year old mindset. Now 18, 19, 20, 21, just getting further and further away from any resemblance of a, of a life that, that I could have imagined myself living. So during that period, so you, you eventually reached a point where you, you did enter long-term recovery. Mm-hmm. Did you at any point during those four years of intense addiction try to stop using? I did. I, I had some. So I was battling a few things at that, at that point in time is that I was battling being young at the at the time, so my first experience with a with a meeting, my grandfather was is still in long term recovery. I think he's got fifty five years now. He's also another gentleman that was in prison and uh, found himself in jail. It's 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 actually a cool story. My grandfather he he ended up reading the Bible multiple times when he was in prison because he was going to prove that this Jesus guy was was no good. He was going to find the flaws in them. Okay. And so he, out of spite, read the Bible, just searching for some sort of uh-huh. validation on his opinions of it. And the opposite happened to him. And he was in jail wow. and, and actually found God and then came out and found the program. And he's been clean ever since. Yeah. Wow. wow. So he, he was my first experience and I wasn't ready to hear what he was trying to, to teach me. And then the meetings that he was bringing me to, they were all older people and they had alcohol problems. And, and I, was, I was young at the time and I couldn't identify, I couldn't connect, you know, with what was happening. So I, I immediately just shut off any hopes of hearing anything from sitting there. And then I started to go through the circuit of like, okay, now, now I'm going, I'm getting arrested often. And then now I'm getting stipulated to programs and I'm having to go to different treatment centers and just even while being in the treatment centers, the, the, the idea of 
never again anything was always like so hard for me to grasp. So I would always just come up with these these new ideas of how I was going to do it. Okay, I'm not going to do heroin no more. I'm going to do a combination of marijuana with alcohol or I'm not going to do. And I would try it and I'd come out because I would get clean. I get a little bit of clarity and I tell myself I was going to use differently. Right? I was going to use safely. I was going to be productive. I was going to work a job and just party on Friday and Saturday and then rest on Sunday and all this stuff. And, and so I spent years working out different combinations that never worked for me. And I would just create more unmanageability and create more havoc in my life and continue to push people away and isolate myself from anybody that cared for me. When did you make the transition from pills, oxy, uh, to heroin? Pretty, pretty quickly, because at that point, um, well, right when I became physically dependent on the oxys, I'd say it was probably like two to three months. So when I first tried them, two to three months, and, and then it became physically dependent. So if I didn't use them, I would get sick. And then my, so at that point, then oxy 80 was $80 a pill. And so my habit in the beginning was a half of one, which was $40. So I could hustle up $40 somehow, and then it went up to $80. And then my habit went up to two eighties, which was $160 a day. And this is a day. A day, $160 yeah. $160 a day is a lot of money. Oh, yeah. That's why we turned Especially real quick. for a 19-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Even if I was working a full-time job, right. and like, yeah. I still wouldn't have been able to afford it. That's obviously why I transitioned into stealing and, and all that. And then it started to get outrageous where I was at like a $320 a day habit. Heroin is, was... 10 times more potent than oxys and it was $40. And if I used it with a hypodermic needle, I could stretch it out even longer than that. I could get a couple days out of it. And so I went from a person that would justify my not as bad as people by, I don't, I don't do heroin. I don't shoot up. I'm not like, like them. And then all of a sudden that, that goes away. That perception goes away and you're just looking to survive and you're like, well, this does make better financial sense for me at this time. It's a lot easier for me to attain and to, yeah. to not be sick. Wow. Yeah, it happens quick, very quick, like yeah. that, that complete transition to that. So, so what was it that, um, so your grandfather tried to intervene. Mm -hmm. I assume other family members probably were trying to help you. Yep. Um, your grandfather was actually an example of somebody who had been living sober for a long time. Yes. So you had that, but that wasn't, that wasn't enough. No. So what was it that, what was the turning point? What, what, and you went and you said you had gone, you had been forced into recovery yes. a number of times and, yep. it, and you kept negotiating with yourself mm -hmm. ways that you would come out and not do that. So what was it that finally, finally caused this switch to flip for you? So the, the beginning transition was, I remember I was in a, a, a treatment center. I was 20 years old at the time. And I was in a lockdown facility. There was 160 guys in there. I had gone through this treatment. It's it, what they call a holding facility. So in, in Massachusetts, you get to a detox. And, and if you're lucky, you, you can get placed into the next phase, which is a holding facility, which is it's like huge looks like a jail where you're sharing a room with eight guys. There's one shower with like 20 shower heads where you shower like in a community, like in prison and there's a cafeteria and it's pretty intense, especially for me when I first went there, I was 18. So it was like terrifying. And then by the time I was 20, I was like a seasoned vet in this place. And, um, and usually what I would do is I would, it would be like, 
recovery time for me. Like I'd be out there ripping, running, getting in trouble, all this stuff. And then I just, I couldn't take it no more. So I'd go to detox just to like get some sense of stability to get my, my mind back together. And then I'd go to the holding facility. And, and while I was there, it would just be to like catch uh, what they call catch rack, like see guys that I knew from the streets or from different programs. And we would play cards and eat and lift weights. And there was never any like talks of anything of like value, like depth, like, oh, I, I need to change or, or even if I did have some grasp of like wanting to change, it would get real cloudy real quick because I didn't even understand completely how I needed to change. And the people in that facility presumably were probably at the same place as you, right? Yeah. I mean, they're there because they're yep. at that early stage. They had no other choice, essentially. No one was there because they wanted to be there. That was oh, for okay. sure. So yeah. this, was, this is a state man, like a, like a you state had facility. Yeah, so something. a lot of people were state uh, mandated there. And then there were some people that just had no other place to go. And okay. so... They went there not because they were on a path to like change their lives. They were there because like it was the winter time and it was freezing out. Yeah. And they didn't have a couch to sleep on at that point. So the transition for me, I remember. So the, the groups there were kind of wonky. It was very, it was a state run facility. So it wasn't like the greatest care not to, I mean, Thank God for that place. It played a vital role, but I'm, they would play like documentaries on like black tar heroin for a group. And it's like, why am I watching a documentary on black tar heroin? Like I know, know what heroin is. And it was, it was just, but, and, and then there would be like commitments, outside commitments. And a lot of the time, the outside commitments would be like a lot of the people that were at my grandfather's groups, like older people they're talking about alcohol, just alcohol. And they just, they'd tell their drunk a log and then they'd be like, and, and now life's good. And, and I could never connect with that. And one night a commitment came in and it was these younger, uh, younger guys from um, South Boston. And there was a speaker there and his name was Jimmy. And he was super highly energetic and he was funny and he was articulate. And um, he was talking about something that I hadn't heard. Um, or maybe I had heard, but I just wasn't ready to listen um, but he was talking about something completely different. He was talking about the experience of a process of change, right? Like a change in his perception, a change in the way that he was thinking and a change in the way that he felt and the freedom that he experienced because of that. And he wasn't selling this idea of like, now I have a job and now I have this and now I have that because I had heard that before. He was selling like, I am not the same person that I was when I first walked into these doors. I do not think the same. I do not feel the same. And not only that, but I'm also evolving into something new there's a newer version of me that's 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 come to light and he was speaking from a place of truth he exposed his his vulnerabilities he exposed his his human frailty and where he fell short and like his process of like what he was doing to like work through that pain and where he's currently at now and he would introduce like humor into because obviously the, the second someone has a, uh, experience with a, a certain defect of character you can find some comedy in the in the in the actual, like, understand, like, yeah, yeah, I did that too. And then to have them say, like, I no longer am required to live like that. So you heard from, is it Jimmy? Is yes. Okay, so Jimmy. Jimmy's telling you something different than what you'd heard in the past. And it triggered something inside of me. Yeah. It triggered something inside of me, and it was the first experience that I, I wanted what he was, what, whatever that is. I didn't even know what it was. Like, I just was like, how, how do I have that? How do I get that? Because... 
I, now I can identify with that. I can identify with those internal struggles. I can identify with the validation. I can identify with the emotions behind all this. I can identify with falling short constantly and letting my family, all that stuff that he was talking about, I instantly connected with. And it was the first time that I had that connection. And it was the first time that I didn't feel uniquely screwed up because someone was talking about it. And for me, that was a turning point for me because I had always classified myself as unique is uniquely messed up in my own way. Therefore, that kept me in silence because no one could fully understand the depths of what I suffer, all this stuff that kept me quiet and locked up within myself. So, okay. So Jimmy triggered, Jimmy yeah. triggered that inside of me that gave, that gauged interest now. Okay. And it wasn't like I was then clean from that moment on, but it gauged interest and it started to get me to, to kind of peek over. What is this all about? What, what do I suffer from? What is, what is the disease of addiction? Like, so how, so how does it, I said to ask questions. So, and, and I wasn't as, as resistant as I once was. So what was the process? You were in a, you were in a, a, a center. You heard Jimmy speak. Mm-hmm. Then what happened? What, how did, what was the, did you, you left, eventually left there. Yep. Where did you find help that, that helped you get to where you are? So from that point on, I went to a program after that. Like I said, it gauged interest. Uh, it made me less resistance, but there was still a resistance in me. I went to a facility and, and I made a commitment to myself, like, oh, I'm gonna do, I'm going to do what's asked of me. I'm not going to be resistant. So uh, I allowed them to pick and choose uh, where they would, because I would always manipulate the situation. I wanted to go to the easier program with the quickest with the least amount of waiting time to get to the program. I wanted to go to the place that'll let me drop my bags and leave and then come back later. I, I was always trying to manipulate the situation to work in my best interest of what I thought was my best interest. And, uh, and so I, I went to a program. I, I took all the suggestions and they told me to go to meetings. I went to meetings. They told me to get a sponsor, I got a sponsor, and they told me to, to do service, they, they told me to wake up, they, everything that they were telling me to do, I did, and, 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 and my life began to get better. My life around me began to get better. Were, was this like an inpatient facility? Were you- yeah, it was the halfway house, so it was a six-month program that I had went to, and I did everything that they told me to do, and I stayed clean. And that was my first experience with, with surrender. I surrendered on, on a a basic level, like a very basic level. Just, I, I did what was told on the most basic level, which was like, this is your curfew, come home. This is when you wake up. This is when you go to bed. This is your chore. You have to go to these meetings. You have to get a job. You have to pay rent. Um, you have to do all these things. And I did well. I did well doing that externally. Like my life externally was, was getting better, which this was the beginning point of, of everything. So that kept me away from the drugs for a long enough period of time where my, the, the transition, the, the shift occurred, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I call it. And that's like pretty much what I based a lot of like when I, when I talk to like guys that I sponsor or why it is that we have to have an understanding of the disease of addiction, like how, how it operates within us, right? Cause we get this confusion that we think that the disease of addiction is centered around drugs and alcohol, drugs and or alcohol, but it's so much deeper than that. That's just a, a consequence of suffering from what we suffer from. So if that's the case and it's not about drugs and alcohol, then my disease can still be active within me internally, even being 
away from the drugs and alcohol for a long length of time if I don't address it. Now, I never had the full understanding of what it was, so therefore I could never address it properly, right? So for from that half, half, uh, that halfway house to up to around three and a half years clean, four years clean, I stayed clean. But I didn't stay clean because I had like surrendered to a true process of growth and change. I stayed clean because of the, this is what I call it. This is the best I can explain it. So we have a disease internally that can manifest itself in any and all areas of our life. Like I told you, I don't, I can take anything in my life and just, and if it makes me feel good, I'll use it. And I can get very distracted and go on what we call a run. The same way I would chase heroin, I can chase anything if it makes me feel good. So from the halfway house, you brought in this young boy with no self-esteem that had never really acquired anything of value in life to, hey, I'm clean. And now I want stuff, right? So I want things and in order for me to, to, to get the things that I want, there were certain things that I, I needed to do. So I'm 21 years old at the time. So I became super obsessed on, obviously I, want, I wanted girls to be attracted to me, but in order for girls to be attracted to me, I had to have a car. In order for me to have a car, I had to get a license. And so like uh, I, I began a process of what, what I call my disease, putting stipulations upon my happiness and sending me on this endless chase to nothing, right? So it said when you arrive at this certain point, essentially everything that you've always been looking for and that freedom that you've been looking for will be there. And so I took the bait over and over and over again. It started with, we just got to graduate this program and get a job and get our own apartment. And I said, okay. And so I graduated the program and I got an apartment. And then, then it was like, oh, we need a vehicle, dude. And I was like, okay, we got to get a vehicle. And so I had to get my license back and then buy a car. And then I bought, got my license back and I had a car. And it was like, oh man, we're, we're too skinny. We need to get in shape. We need to get in shape now. And I'm like, okay. And so like, I get really obsessive on the gym and I'm focused on like my body and supplements. And at that time I started taking steroids and all to create this, this, this perception. And then now I have the muscles and I have, I have a car and I have the apartment. It's like, now we need a girlfriend. We need a really, and I'm like, okay. And so now I'm chasing after the girl. And then, and it was like a never ending cycle. And so it was under the promise too. And this is, this is the, the, the saddest part about it is it was under the promise, the false promise that when I arrived at whatever point it was that it was sending me, that the freedom that I had always sought after would be there waiting for me and I'd be able to finally breathe and I wouldn't be suffering from all these things that I'd been suffering from my whole life. And it was, it, it, it was a bar that every time you reached it was set higher and it was an endless chase of something. And then finally I find myself with four years clean with all the stuff that my disease had promised me. If you just get this, you'll be happy. And I had... I, I was in shape and, and I had an apartment and I had a roommate and I had a car and I, my license and, and, I, and, and my family was proud of me and, and I had all this validation from all these people telling me you're doing good because externally it looked like it, right? And, and I had a, a, a girl and I had endless amounts of clothes and sneakers. I mean, endless, like just because I needed all of it, all every bit of it, I needed all of it. And, and I had all this stuff and I remember sitting in my bed and I was the most depressed and the most miserable that I had ever been. I'm even talking using. even when I was using. Wow. Because at least when I was using, I could kind of directly correlate the negative emotions that I was experiencing oh, okay. to the fact that I was shooting heroin. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy because the, the gifts of recovery happen in spite of like how 
just uh, inevitably we stop just using drugs and and all that stuff and and we live clean and abstinent life gets life gets better in spite of how we're doing internally one of the benefits of me not using in that four four year period um was my relationship with my stepfather i developed this beautiful relationship with them and he would call me and like my resentments and all the stuff that I have, I had come to a place where I, I kind of, I didn't feel any of that anger towards him. A, a lot of my being able to look back at that point, my acting out and just looking at it from his perspective, you know, like he stuck by me regardless and, and he did the best that he could. And, and I was a jerk as a child too, you know, we didn't speak for years for years when I was using like almost a two and a half year period, we didn't speak a word to each other. So when I finally got clean, we began a slow process and then we became super close. And then he was like confiding in me and st with stuff and he was trusting in me and me for it. It was just, a, I had an awesome relationship with him that I was super grateful for. So he got sick when I, when I had about four years clean and, and it was out of nowhere. And, um, my mother called me and told me that he was driving home and his face started to droop a little bit and he was looking in the mirror and he didn't know what it was. And so he went to the hospital and they're keeping him overnight to do some tests and she was super scared. And my mother is like, a, like talk about faith, like uh, that woman's a saint. And I definitely get what I do from my mother. Yeah. Um, and to hear the fear in her voice, like I knew something was wrong. So the... They do all these tests, they can't figure out what it is. And over like a one week span, cause they sent him home and then he was experiencing like headaches and all that stuff. And they came back and they had to, they, had, they, they did like a, a, a certain type of scan and they could see like shadows in the scan of his brain, but they weren't completely sure. They knew they had to do a brain biopsy if they were to be completely sure of like what was happening. And um, so they, January 29th, which was also my birthday, they did a brain biopsy on him and uh, they found out that his brain was covered in legions, cancer. And um, he had brain cancer, severe, and he probably had about four months to live, which out of nowhere. The crazy part is, is so that night I went to the hospital. I was with my two younger brothers and we were joking around. My two younger brothers are hilarious. They're just great kids and never struggled with substance use, nothing. And we were in the hospital room and, and my brother Trey makes my, makes my father laugh so hard. Like he just has this, he can, even from a young age, like he could, he could talk trash to my dad when he was getting yelled at and my, it would tickle my, my father was like so serious. You know what I mean? Like Italian, old school, like people were afraid of him. He didn't speak much. And like Trey would just be like, nah, yell at him. And, and he would get a kick out of it because he's not, no one talked to him like that. So we were at the hospital and Trey, we're all making him laugh and all this. And he had to get, he had to go to bed cause he was doing the brain biopsy that night. And so we were all leaving and we all stayed, all bye. My brother Nico said, bye, I love you, stuff like that. And Trey said the same thing, bye, I love you. And, and then I went up, I shook his hand to give him a hug. And I said, all right, bye, I love you. When I went to pull my hand away, he squeezed. And, uh, and, and he pulled me in and he said, he said, you know, I love you, right? And I was like, I was like, yeah, of course. I was like, of course, Dad, I know that. And he pulled me in again. He was like, no, you know that I, that I love you, right? And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah. And uh, 
And then he hugged me tight. And he was like, all right. And, and that was the last thing that he ever said to me. Because that night, he went in for the biopsy. And uh, they told him he had four months to live. And they, after that, he went back to sleep. And it was like, he just was like, I'm not doing, I'm not doing that. And he just let go. The crazy part to that was that I didn't know. I had that, you know, that like internal struggle, like from a young kid, like he loves them. He must, I, I confused that from like, a, like the stuff that I carried with me. And, uh, and he said that to me in that moment. And it's like he almost, he knew, he knew I needed that, right? Like almost required it. And, uh, Had he never said that to you before? Not like that. Okay. Yeah, I love you, Dad. I love you too. This was like a, a felt like, like he needed me to know for sure. Like he needed me to know that it was, it was, it was no different the way, because he didn't say that to my brothers, you know, like obviously they, they know, they knew he loved them. They didn't, they didn't struggle with that internally. He knew that I must have struggled with that internally. And I, he knew that I needed that. And, uh, that was the last thing that he ever said to me. And um, so there I was, right? He passed away. And the, the next day, everything slipped upside down in my life. And uh, now, now, mind you, I've been living to this perception. And I, there's assumptions from everybody around me that Chris got four years. He must be doing all this. And uh, now my mother's, who's the source of all strength, is just broken. And then there's my brothers, who are babies at the time, like 15 years old and 17 years old, or whatever it was, and they're broken. And, and my sister, who had her own struggles, and uh, and then here I am, like, just like, I, I wanted, I, I just come from that place, like I told you about, like wanting to, struggling with the idea of using, and then my my father passing away and everything being upside down. And um, the only thing that kept me clean in that moment is I was not going to let my mother lose her husband and her son in one whack. And so... But you were thinking about it. Oh, I was thinking about it, yeah. Two days later, it was a Wednesday, I believe. I know it was a Wednesday. I don't know if it was two days later, but I, I, I remember calling on my mom, checking on her, and like being strong. And then I'm hanging up the phone and just sobbing, crying, in just in this place of desperation. And a gentleman came by the house. He was actually friends with one of my friends, and I couldn't stand this guy. I, I could not stand him. And um, why couldn't you stand him? Because he 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 had freedom to be himself. He and and I didn't even know that that's essentially why I couldn't stand him. But he 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 was brave to me brave in the way that he could raise his hand in a meeting and share honesty brave in the way that he could stand up in front of the room and crack jokes and not be afraid like not overanalyze every thought like is this going to be funny should i say this how should i say this how will it like that was like what mine was my mind was like you know and and uh he was beloved by many people he had all these friends he had a sponsor like he was invested in this and so i hated him but I was just jealous and envious of him. It wasn't an actual hatred, but it came out like that because he was a reminder to me constantly of what I was not, yeah. you know, 
And so that's what created that inner turmoil. That's why I was okay. like, I don't like that guy. <laughs> don't bring him around. And, uh, but so he came so to my he house. <laughs> he was around. He was around by default. And he knew I didn't like him too, which was crazy <laughs> that this moment, which was such an integral part in everything for me. And um, he walked in. My buddy Keith was with them. They were about to go to the gym and Keith went upstairs and Joe was just kind of like awkwardly standing in the living room. He saw me crying and he just like, didn't kind of know what to do. And like, and he walked in the kitchen and, um, he asked me, he's like, are you all right? And, uh, and I was just crying. I didn't respond. And, uh, he was like, why don't you come to the men's meeting tonight? He's like, there's a, there's a meeting tonight that I go to. He's like, you should come to this men's meeting. And uh, everything inside of me was like, no, 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 absolutely not. Get this guy out of here. Like my internal dialogue was just like, ah. And then I opened up my mouth and I was like, okay. <laughs> and I don't know where that came from. I have no idea where that came from. And yeah. five hours later, I found myself in a men's meeting. And at that men's meeting, my pain was so strong internally. I had been living this this lie for so long and just like the the putting on the show and dancing for all these people and not dancing in like the professionals. I'm like, when I say dancing for people, I mean like a, a performance, a perform like giving them what, what I think that they want out of me. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the chameleon component and, uh, and I raised my hand at that meeting and for the first time ever, I completely exposed myself through, through dialogue. I let people know exactly where I was at, exactly who I'd been for four years, exactly what I was struggling with, exactly the type of life and unspiritual things and the way that I lie and the way that uh, I manipulate people and the way that uh, how I was taking steroids because that was a big secret and I would deny it to everybody that was asking me and like not only was I taking them, I was selling them and and, and, and I had gotten robbed selling them. All, all this insanity of my life without using drugs and like who I, like because in the meetings like I would pray, I would raise my hand every now and then and I'd say something profound that I read in the literature that I didn't even live by, I believe, oh, just because okay. I wanted people to think I was smart, right? Or I wanted the, uh -huh. the I wanted validation, right? I wanted the girls to be like, oh, he's awesome. And the guys <laughs> to be like, oh, he's cool. Yeah. And um, full exposure. And I held that meeting hostage for about 25 minutes and I just unleashed everything. And uh, this is exactly who I am. And I was freely being myself for the first time and I, I don't even know in a long time and and I I got the first exposure of what that freedom was that I was actually looking for all those years and uh and my, the reaction that I had always assumed that would happen had it had I ever done that it wasn't what I nobody stormed out nobody was like oh not only that, but after that meeting, I connected with more people at a meeting than I had ever connected with before sure. from like a sense of like guys coming up to me to support me and love me up. And then guys like, hey, can I talk to you? You know, that thing that you were talking about. Oh, I struggle with that, too. That's really been. And it was like I opened up all these conversations with so many. I had connected with more people than I had ever thought. And it was the turning point of everything. That night at that meeting, there was another gentleman that was there that heard me speak. He had just lost a friend of his, um, one of his best friends, like four months prior. And, and so he heard me speak about the loss of my father and all the stuff that I was going through. And uh, he invited me to a meeting 
that was uh, a couple days later that he was speaking at. That gentleman ended up speaking about, he had a similar message to the guy Jimmy that had spoke five years prior and he was talking about all this stuff, but then he was talking about how he got to that place through step work and through honesty and communication and um, all this stuff. And, and, uh, and, and I was like ready to hear, right? I, I, I was finally in a place where I was like, whatever this guy is selling, I'm buying. I asked him to be my sponsor and he taught me about recovery. He taught me about the disease of addiction and um, he showed me a pathway to the solution that I'd been looking for. And, uh, and, and then everything changed. So when did you, uh, at some point in your recovery, you started, you became a professional dancer. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Cause I'm curious, cause that leads into the, that leads into, I want to ask you about your entrepreneurship. You had kind of mentioned that you've done a lot of business. So how did you become a professional dancer? It's, How does that happen in somebody's life? It's funny when you when when you awake the spirit. That's why I talk about like yelling at the spirit. When you start to get some an addict, especially an addict like me, to starting to believe in the possibility of something, then for brief moments the dialogue mentally would start to change, and maybe for a brief moment uh, I would have this belief like, oh, I could probably dance and. And it just takes me saying that out loud once to engage in a dialogue with someone else. Like, you should do that. Well, you, you could do it or, or whatever it is. And uh, at, the, at that time with that sponsor, I was working a job in the roofers union. I hated it every day. Um, it's hard work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm not like a man's man. I'm the furthest thing from a man's man. I'm like the opposite of that. I was, I'm like scared of bugs, spiders. I don't like the feeling of dirt on my, f- I'm the opposite, but I did it because that's what I thought that because of the felonies and all this stuff, I was like, well, what can you do? What can I do? This is going to be it's it. Tough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have, I had no idea that I could create my own path. If there wasn't paths being provided for me, it was like, go out and forge your own, like find what you're passionate about. And I didn't know that that was possible at that point. I remember being on the roof every day and obviously at this point like I'm doing step work and all this stuff and I'm, I'm generating a new belief system and I'm not even sure I, I, I even have the awareness to know that it's happening. I remember being on the roof and uh, I had a roommate at the time and we both worked together. We drove together and all this stuff and we actually shared an apartment and uh, I remember being up there and I was like, I'm not doing this no more. He was like, what? He's like, I'm quitting today. He's like, you can't quit. I'm like, nah, I'm quitting. He's like, what are you going to do? And I remember talking to my, uh, my sponsor and some other people. I was like, I think I want to try to be a dancer. And uh, I was like, I want to dance. He said, don't shut up, dude. <laughs> I'm like, nah, I'm dead serious. I want to be a dancer. And uh, I had had a little bit of experience with it when I was like 18. I had dabbled. There was this group that did it in Boston. And, and uh, I had like a brief for like four or five months. I worked with them, but I was using, and uh, it didn't work, obviously. I was strung out on drugs trying to, but I saw it, I, and, and it was embedded in my mind, and now this is fast forward years, years later. Yeah, this is, you know. you're going to be 24, 25, yep. you're yep. talking about? Yeah, almost seven years later, yep. yeah. I went back to that same place, so I quit the roofers union. They had like an intervention with me at the time, and <laughs> uh, my, my roommate and his girlfriend had an intervention telling me all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. You know, I have to work. I have to do this. This is as good as they were. They're almost feeding that part of my disease 
that was telling me like this is this is all I could have and uh, uh-huh. it wasn't their fault you know because right. I mean technically they I sounded crazy yeah it sounded crazy the, the, I don't know what the stats are on the transition from roofing to dancing but I'm pretty sure they're not the greatest and uh, especially at 25 well, yeah yeah you're starting late I mean absolutely I, mean, I don't know the feel, that is super late yeah, yeah most it's kids like a thing you're doing from like 15 or something yeah. even younger they yeah. start even younger than that yeah. my friend Jay was at the house that night and he was in the other room and he was also like um he's he he's a big dreamer he he's like a does graffiti and art he's amazing he did all the artwork in the the barbershop oh, okay yeah it's very nice yep he does that with with spray cans too which is uh he's just super talented and so he has all these passions in, in like the similar field and and he called he was listening to the conversation he was like screw that do it as they were like having the information, he's like, you better do it. And he was like the antithesis of that. And, and I did it. I, I, and it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy transition. Like I went down to that same company and the owner of that company, um, one of the owners was a DT that had currently arrested me before. He was an Everett police officer. He knew my history and they still took a risk on me and they allowed me to dance in the company, um, auditioned to dance in the company. And they knew I was like raw and, um, raw talent, not seasoned, but, I had that hunger inside of me and I was committed now. I had the capabilities to commit now. And, um, and I was, I was doing something that I had passion for. So it was like, it was a different feeling. Like I I was, I was like working very hard at a craft. Whereas at the roof, when I was in the roof unit, I hide all day and try to nap behind porta potties. Like I wasn't passionate about that. The whole time the foreman was like, he didn't even know my name. He called me Sean. All I could ever hear him, he's just like, where the hell is Sean, man? Where is Sean? That's all I used to hear. And I'd like resurface and I'd have a broom in my hand that act like I was sweeping or something. It was terrible. So one year of commitment with uh, recovery and, and dancing and all this stuff. And, uh, and I, they ended up giving me a job teaching. They let me teach my own class. And that, that class became popular and... I was dancing in their company. I got an opportunity to do like a small tour in California with the with the dance group. It just started to the the, the ripple effect started to happen, and um, and then the wild part about it is, it's like through that I'm doing all this work on myself. And uh, a year after my father passed away, there was an audition for uh, this TV show on MTV called America's Best Dance Crew, and. Uh, my, now my two younger brothers began to pursue dance when they were when they were younger. So now they're older. I'm 25, 26. They're like 18 and whatever. And uh, they're dancing super talented, way better than me. And uh, a year after, there was this MTV crew, uh, MTV show, the Jabberwockies and all that stuff were on it. That's it was like this famous show. And I remember my my stepfather was telling my little brothers like, "You guys are gonna be on that show one day. Like, you guys gotta do that show." And um, and so a year after he passed away, the auditions were on the, they were actually on January 29th and the same day, my birthday and that same day. Wow. And we went to New York. We auditioned with a six person crew and uh, we ended up getting on the show. You, your two brothers and three other guys? Yep. There was three other guys and one female. Oh, okay. Yep. And uh, we made the show and it's crazy because the, the whole storyline, if you, if you watch the show was based off of my father and the three of us dancing and they paid tribute to him and um nice yeah and it and 
it's crazy because I remember the moment being on stage and the way that it works out is you, you film at Warner Brothers Studio. It's in Burbank, Burbank, California. It's like this circular stage and they have these big screens all around and it's like this audience that's in there and they're showing what they call packages right before you dance. And uh, so it was, we, we went out to California. Now we were like, like the misfit underdog crew, like all these teams that we were going against were from like all over the world, like super professional, seasoned and uh, and we were just like so out of our element. I remember we were on the circular stage, my sponsor at the time, who was like the, the master of speaking to my spirit, like you can do this and all the fears, he was the antidote, the counteractor of like those fears. He, he like always pushed me to do this stuff, pushed me to do the audition and um, and I remember communicating with them for like all this stuff. I don't know if I can do it. And um, like just, just super support. And I remember him being, he was sitting in the front row of the filming. He flew out to California. And I remember watching the package and I'm standing there and the way that we're standing, the formation is my youngest brother, Trey, he's in the middle. And then it's my brother, Nico on the left. And then it's me and we're standing in like a V formation and the whole package that they play, and we don't even know what the package is. It's talking about my dad, and it's and it's talking about. It's like telling that story, and it shows my brother talking about my father saying one day you're going to be on this show. It talks about the anniversary of his death. It showed us auditioning on that the on my birthday, the anniversary, and it just played out everything in front of me. And then there's a sound they make to let you know that you're going on. It goes tick, tick, tick tick and then the music starts and you just go it's just like out of body experience so surreal like i'm almost like in tears we're trying to get it together watching this package and then the tick 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 happens and then boom the music starts and we're dancing and like the crowd erupts when we're done and uh my sponsor's in the front row and he's just and he's like this close mind you this close and he's yelling you effing dead he's swearing because he's so up uh sure uh, passionate yeah he's yeah. like you did it you did it yeah. and uh and it it was just such a surreal moment and it was like i believe in god and it was just like uh just seeing how everything like that man who taught me about recovery and and helped me to 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 open up my mind to believe in the possibilities of anything through walking through fears the the internal change the taking the risks to pursuing of dreams, path and purpose to, to leading me through what was once a terrible circumstance of us losing my father and then to watch a tribute of him that's gonna be broadcast on national, like millions of people to standing next to my two younger brothers in that moment clean. It was just like such a surreal moment. And uh, so we come back from California. We came in third place on the show America loved us. The only reason why we got kicked off is because we fell into the, we had to, there was a little kid group and America will always love little kids more. (laughs) One little kid group and they knocked us off. But the publicity coming home, which led me into opening up our own dancing school. And um, so is this your first entrepreneurial venture? Yep. That's what I thought. Okay. So, so the dancing school was the first and, um, We, we opened that about like five, six months after we came home from California and I opened it with my, my two younger brothers and the same woman in um, the cop that were the ones that gave us the opportunity invested yeah. in us okay. to open it. Nice. Yep. 
But that was my first experience with uh, being an entrepreneur and being in business. And it was another fear of like thinking that that would never be something that would be possible for me, right? Opening up a business. And, uh, and so I did that for, for years, just teaching and, and going out and doing different college events and, and working with the youth, the Boys and Girls Club and all that. And at some point there was a transition in, in my passion for what I wanted, right? And, and so like, I call it, I, I say God calls I answer or the universe calls I answer. And it's just like, my spirit is like, it starts to open up for something. And it usually pulls me in a certain direction. And I trust it. A lot of the time I used to resist it. I trusted it the first time that day that I quit roofing and it led me to that wild ride. And then, uh, that's pretty amazing. I have to say, yeah, it was, it was surreal the whole time. And even when I was out there, I always thought every day that I was out in California, like they were going to pull out my, uh, my criminal record and be like, yeah, you're you're not supposed to be here. Get him out of here. And, uh, it never happened. And just the whole, like, oh, that people only knew who I, so like thinking like who who I was like and where I'm at because they didn't talk about my addiction on there and and stuff like that they didn't even know yeah but uh it was actually dancing that led me into being pursuant to get me to where I am here okay so how did how did the how, how did that so, so when did you move into pro- services for for addiction so it was about six six years ago um. Six or seven years ago. I'm, I'm bad with time. But I remember being in the dance studio. And uh, I was at the front desk. And um, it's, we, our studio was very successful. We had a bunch of kids that were coming there. And um, so the parents would uh, congregate in like this little area. It was like a waiting room. And I was just sitting there typing away, um, doing something. And they were talking about this methadone clinic that was opening up in Saugus. They were like, did you hear about that methadone clinic opening up in Saugus? They're like, I don't want those junkies in my neighborhood. I don't want addicts, this. And they would just, I listened to them for about 20 minutes, just talk so derogatory about addicts and junkies. And I remember sitting there and I'm like, if they only knew, like they're having this conversation so comfortable in front of me because they have no idea. They have no idea who I am. Like who, like, and it wasn't like I was hiding it. It's just that it never, I never really felt, a, it, it was never, like I would, I was very active in the halls, right? Very active in recovery throughout like different, like at that point I was super committed to recovery and like 12 step recovery meetings. And I, I was sponsoring a bunch of guys, but we're from anonymous programs, right? Where that's, that was where I was active in anonymous programs. And like, we don't really, you don't post on social media, you don't talk about none of that stuff. So there really would be no reason for them to know. And uh, something clicked inside of me. I was like, I wanted to use my my platform because I knew if I told them that, that you know, I'm an addict, it would have created like, oh my, it would have changed the dialogue instantly because I knew that they respected me. I knew that they paid for me to teach their kids. Like they drop, they would drop their kids off and trust them with me for hours at a time, you know? And, uh, and so it, it, like I told you, the, the universe calls or God calls and I answer and something was inside of me. Like I want to be more invested outside of just my norm of going to the halls, right? Like how do I get people to have more, like, cause we can't promote the halls. We can't promote 12 step recovery and all that. So, so how do I promote recovery? So you're using this phrase, the halls. What does that mean? 
So the halls is like um, what you'd call where meetings take place. So 12-step okay. recovery, like so AA, okay. NA, CA. So that's essentially the, uh, another word for meetings. Okay. But um, I went on this whole, I wouldn't call it like a tour, but I started to be more expressive of who I was via social media, via through conversation. Um, I became more and more comfortable with allowing people to know um, that I was an addict. Like I remember talking to the dance group about it and just I wanted it to be more known. And then I started to make it more known and um, I started to speak at certain events. And so I decided that I, I wanted to open up a sober house. And um, I had a friend, Nick, who was in Florida. He was also an entrepreneur. He's also in, in, in long-term recovery. And, um, and I remember him having a conversation with me like, oh, you should get into do something with recovery, stuff like that. You're very passionate. And so Rise Above started with dialogue between two people in um, which led to a connection of multiple people that eventually led to the initial um, entity forming. So it began with the conversation from me and my friend Pete. I told him I wanted to open up a sober living, and my idea of what I wanted to do for a sober living was I wanted to make them real nice. I wanted to put flat screen TVs in them. I wanted to put internet and cable. I wanted people to feel like they were in a home, and that because a lot of them are like dirty and disgusting, and 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 it just. It, it, it wasn't like a, you didn't feel a sense of pride living there. You felt like it was a punishment and because it was almost like an extension of a shelter and, and there wasn't nice things in there and it was just like empty bedrooms. And uh, so my philosophy out the gate was I wanted to have flat screen TVs and I wanted to have uh, cable and I wanted to brand new furniture and nice mattresses and and I wanted to go to the houses and I wanted to work recovery with the guys. I wanted to, to have house meetings with them and I wanted to share my experience and I wanted to motivate. The problem was I didn't have money. I didn't have yeah, any money. Right, right. And so, and neither did my buddy Pete at the time. He had good credit, but he just didn't have income. We couldn't, we, we thought about buying a house. We couldn't, we couldn't buy a house. So it didn't, it didn't end up working the first couple months, but I was relentless in pursuit just just I talked about it all the time because now it was like I told you my yeah. spirit was alive and I wanted it. And uh, so anybody that would engage in the conversation with me about it, I would just talk about it. And yeah. um, at the dancing studio, I was at the dancing studio, this this woman, Chanel, who I had grown up with. She had opened up her own yoga business and she was like new to it. And she contacted me. Hey, can I do yoga at your dance studio? I'll do it for free. Um, I just want to kind of start to market myself and I was like absolutely come through and she came and she did a free yoga class and it was amazing and then she was talking to me after and um, she was like so what's new how you been I'm like good she's like so is this all you're doing now just the dancing school you're doing this full time I'm like yeah I'm like uh, I'm, I'm dancing I was like but what I of course because I'm in that place of just relentlessly communicating about what it is that I want I'm like I, I really want to open up my own recovery home and and it's so random I was I guess I'm sometimes obnoxious in pursuit where I'm just locking it. Hey, listen to my dreams. Um, and I started to, started to tell her what it was that I was trying to do and, and what I wanted to do. And she was like, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. So you guys doing it? I was like, oh, no, we, 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 can't, we can't afford to buy a house right now. I have, to, uh, I have to boost up. I have to get more income. And, and she was like, you should talk to my brother. I was like, your brother? She was like, yeah, his name is Keith. He owns a bunch of properties. It's like, you should give him a call. Maybe you can do something with him. I was like, okay. 
And so she gave me Keith's number. I called Keith up mm-hmm. and uh, I met him at a Chick-fil-A in a North Shore mall and I sat down with him and I gave him that pitch of what it is that I wanted to do and I didn't even know how he could help or what, what it was. And um, he happened to have a property in, in Lynn that he was about to be clear of one floor. He's like, I'll rent it to you. And so he's like, I'll take it. And so we took one floor of a three family and Peter had one credit card and we furnished one floor with his one credit card and maxed out his credit card and began Rise Above. So from the business side, so it's, it's basically runs on rent. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be, that's it. I'm inter- it's, so it's rent. I mean, rent. Yep. Um, and so what was your problem with your business model? You said you were kind of, having, was it, <laughs> didn't, you didn't find the right people right away? Or? No, 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 no. It's, well, it's not even that. It's not it's, high enough rent or? Well, no, it's, it's that, so we've always, it's, it's more about the integrity of the program rather than the financial, right? So mm-hmm. as long as we operate with what we call like spiritual principles and integrity. So just, mm-hmm. just the overall, so we've never, we don't kick people out over money. Well, no, I, I mean, in the beginning, you said you're, you were having trouble with the, your business model. What was, what oh, was yeah, because the there was a ton of money coming out being invested in, and there wasn't a ton of money coming in in the beginning. <laughs> okay, it was so. just because you didn't have occupancy at that point. No, and okay. then the people that were occupying weren't paying. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we were scholarshiping <laughs> from the very beginning, okay. you know, like, yeah. which so. if I was trying to pitch that to a private equity group, they probably would have been like, <laughs> I don't see what this is, and okay. we'll pass. Yeah. All right. So you got past that. So, yes, but no, and like, it, we started with this group and, and us scholarshipping people and us allowing people to come in with, that were indigent with no money and to give them an opportunity to succeed in less stressful circumstances is why we blew up so quick. So what once thought everybody thought we were crazy for, which is housing people for free coming out of programs and giving the people the opportunity to fall three, four, five weeks behind on rent and not kicking them out over money and just working with like each individual on an individual basis, just as long as their recovery was first and foremost and as long as they were putting in the effort in pursuit to, to, to find a job or if we could see that they were working towards, we would leave them alone and we would help in that. And that was the reason why we went ba-boom so fast, why we went from that one little apartment of six beds to 170 in the course of four years. Wow. Okay, so you more than that one building. Right? Yes. 170 beds in four years. Wow. So how did that growth happen? Where are the homes? and? So they're all over. Um, so we have a female house in Malden who's run that in all Massachusetts is all women, and that's run by Nicole White, who is the, the owner of Rise Above Massachusetts because we kind of just broke it off into states and then Rise Above New Hampshire. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven in New Hampshire. Wow. Eleven different homes in New Hampshire. And uh, that's myself, Justin, and Nick, my original friend that oh, okay. I talked about earlier, but yeah, and it grew fast because the only other sober living programs when we first came out here were like 2500 a month and you needed first, last, and there wasn't a lot of options for people. $2,500 a month to live in one? Yeah, some of them were up to five grand. That's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they said it's a small market. 
There was people that would go there. People, yes, yeah, wealthy families, or yeah, okay. And then we came in and we were like, "We'll work with what you got." And then obviously the phone started pouring in. Yeah. The phone calls from different facilities and in different places. And so you're charging a price point where ordinary people could, yep. without without family support, could have exactly afford. Not only we, we, it's affordable, but if you don't have it in the beginning, we give you the the leeway of time to find something that can ultimately pay $150 a week, a job, uh-huh. or something. And sometimes, I mean. There's different scholarship programs that we help with people. So not only do we get them linked up with money that's available through the state that will pay for their first month. So then they're, they got a month paid up and then our leeway of two to three weeks. So they essentially got a month and a half to find a job, which is like a breath of fresh air for someone coming from a treatment center into sober living without having that like, uh, even if someone gave them the money to move in, then the rent's due the following week. There's that constant pressure. Yeah. So... So, so you you grew this program, the um, Rise Above. I mean, so from Rise Above, the the sober living. When did you and Justin start thinking about the Process Recovery Center where we're sitting today? Um, so, I think it was about two, maybe a year and a half, two years that we were just Rise Above, and I had a friend Nick who was in Florida who had started his own aviation company, another entrepreneur and, and um, he was familiar because he had gone through like a treatment center many years ago in florida that's why he was out there still he had graduated turned his life around he had um, a good amount of clean time and he was an entrepreneur and he always used to tell us that uh because we were running such a successful sober living he was like you should add the treatment element to it because a lot of people that would come to us would be going to outside treatment centers while living with us. They would go to different IOPs. They'd have to commute to Manchester or they'd be at Harbor Homes or they'd be at different places. So he was like, if you guys want to do that, I'll invest. I'll invest in, because again, we didn't, we didn't have the, we weren't, we were in debt for the first two and a half years, almost three years with Rise Above. So we didn't have like a bank account full of money ready to right. pursue Start next. another venture. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So... With his financial support, we decided to bring the treatment component of it so that so we all we opened up the process recovery center and a small office on Kinsley Street in Nashua it was about 1300 square feet, this little office. And um, how did you come to Nashua? Mass is flooded with different treatment centers and it, there's a ton of state funded programs where when I came out here, I was like, you mean there's only two detoxes in this whole state? There's only that many treatment centers like whereas mass you can i could name 20 detoxes and 50 programs and whereas in hampshire they were like keystone hall and farnham and that's it is that it's still it pretty much yeah there's probably like four okay. that i know of green mountain now is okay. one all right so that's not a lot for a whole state no i mean it's a small state but we have a lot of problems with, with yeah addiction one of the worst per capita in the right. in the whole country right yeah no what's sad is is that we only have a handful of detoxes when we have so much need. Yeah, and a handful of programs too. Yeah. So, which is, and then all of a sudden we went to the, the treatment component of it, which was, we were based in Nashua, the need was Nashua, the sober living was blown, go, growing so fast in Nashua, so we were like, we'll open up the treatment component of it in, in Nashua, and then we outgrew this little office on Kinsley Street within five months. It was like, we couldn't fit in there no more which obviously led us to this office here. Yeah. And then the treatment component, we, we, we hired um, a medical director, we hired a clinical director, we had therapists and 
Um, we just basically started as just an IOP. In the, so we've expanded. Uh, we're now a PHP, IOP, and outpatient. So we're a partial hospitalization, transitioning into intensive outpatient, transitioning into outpatient, which okay. then transitions into recovery coaching. So we, we've grown and adapted. There's a lot of treatment centers similar to us in the PHP, but once you graduate, you've, you're getting referred out. Like we to actually get a lot of referrals into our sober living from other programs. Okay. A lot of people don't want to deal with this. Deal with? Sober living, that what comes with sober living. Okay. It's not highly profitable and it is a lot of work. Okay. And it's actually my favorite part. It's very easy to, to work with someone in the confines of like a residential facility where they're not allowed to make calls, make decisions. They don't have their phone. They don't have their, they're on the, the site and the premise, but dealing with addicts and or people who suffer from substance use and early recovery like just in real life like watching that's where they need the most help that's where I needed the most help when I got my first job when I had my phone back when I was talking to people I shouldn't have been talked to when I was struggling with behaviors like that's what happens in our sober living community real life situations and that's what we actually get to help like you get to see things unfold in real time in the and they're, they're happening to them while they're still in the confines of like support. It's when they need support the most. But it's also when we're the craziest. Addicts in early, <laughs> addicts are in early recovery, we're out of our minds. Right. You go from a suppression of all emotions to a complete abundance of emotions that, has, that makes no sense. That's just a roller coaster ride. And it's up and down. It's up and down. And, yeah. and uh, we're resistant. We're not resistant. We're happy. We're not happy. We're, we're, we're gung-ho recovery, we're anti-recovery. Uh, it's just, it makes no sense. And you just kind of kind of weather the storm and continue to just be a, a consistency. And yeah, it's not, it's not the easiest. I always say you, you got to be a special breed of, like the people that work for me and work with me are like saints. It's, it's not, you got to be a special, you got to have a special type of patience internally to, to deal with it, to not allow your personal frustration and stuff like that to get in the way because... You get challenged constantly. It's a challenging job. Everything that I've done from beginning to end, everything that we've done as a, as a unit, all, us, all the different partners I've had is trial and error. And, I, and, and we've screwed up a ton of stuff, but it's been the most valuable screw ups that I've ever had in my life, right? Because it transitioned and changed things into like, okay, now I know. And now obviously it opened up new directions and and that's why, and I always lived in this place of fear where I had to understand every little bit and detail of everything before I did something. So I always sat still and never did anything. And then since that day that I walked off that roof and I had no idea of, well, how's this going to work out? Logically thinking it wasn't the greatest idea, but it worked itself out anyway, because I was just, I was, I was clear on, on my intention and, and what I wanted to happen. And that's essentially all this. Right. So our billing company has people in recovery that work there, too. And it's run by Nick, who's one of my best friends, who's also in recovery. Yeah. We essentially took something where we used to have someone do the medical billing for us and it cost a lot of money. And then we went, why don't we do our own billing company? OK. And you but you now market that service to other organizations. Yeah. Well, well. We actually currently bill for other organizations okay. now. Yeah. Wow. Yep. How many other organizations? I mean, so you've got a barbershop, you've got all these, um, uh, all these uh, sober living facilities, you've got the treatment facility, you've got the medical billing. What else, are you, uh, what else are you doing? We have Integrate, which is in Nashua. Integrate is essentially similar to the process, 
So you have another another treatment facility mm-hmm. integrate. Yes. They, do they do the same levels of treatment? Yep. So right now it's start. It's just IOP recovery coaching and outpatient there. Yeah. Are you building up to? Yep. PHP. Wow. Yep. Wow. A lot of stuff going on. No, no, absolutely, and it's it's been a. I mean, between that and then revive the re, the resource center. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that. Is that that's a not for profit yes. entity that you have? And what do they do? So they provide services to the community. Anybody indigent, no insurance, no money, not clean, nothing. They can walk into the resource center and they could receive recovery coaching. They could go to, because there's free meetings there, uh, seven days a week. They do, I actually just got the annual report from over there. It's pretty awesome. But you can literally walk in there, get help with uh, a job application. You can get linked up with the different New Hampshire programs, that state programs that can help you with finding a job or if you're seeking out treatment or if you're trying to get insurance, you don't have insurance or if you just need guidance. It's just open to anybody. It's, it's operated by an amazing team of certified recovery support workers. And it's just like a community organization. So it's, you, you don't have to commit to it. You don't have to live. The, it's just a lot of people just go in there and utilize it for what it is or they attend the free yoga or the free meditation or the different 12 step meetings or there's health realization meetings. There's, Buddhist meetings, it's like everything that, that you could possibly get introduced to in any pathway of recovery, it's, it's there to go check out and there's resources there. Most people don't ever, you know, quit the job mm-hmm. the way you did and, and kind of make the jump to be an entrepreneur. What's, a, what's an entrepreneur life like? <laughs> uh, it's peaks and valleys, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, it's, but for me... I truly genuinely believe that we're put on this, uh, this is just my belief system. Some people may want to argue with me, but I believe that we're put on this earth and and our sole mission is to find what our path and purpose is. You have to do something in your life that's fulfilling to you, right? Otherwise, I feel like you're selling yourself short at at the full experience of life. And I've lived on the other side and I've fallen prey to the ideals that were like embedded in me from whether it be society or you're just supposed to shut up and work hard and take care of and just be grateful for what you have. And, and I, no one ever talked. I didn't hear a lot of people just saying, go for it, follow your heart, follow your dreams, or, or be in pursuit of path and purpose. If you don't know what it is, like be in a place of discovery, like at least start with the, the identification that you want to do something fulfilling. That could be the first step towards that, whatever that is fulfilling, and just take the steps necessary that will ultimately take you closer to to finding what what that is and understand that that first initial step through that first door will 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 take you through a ride down many different doors that'll lead you to a place that you probably never expected to be doing something that maybe you never expected to do but all the while it's 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 fulfilling and it's providing you that path and purpose especially with addicts I, i i'm a firm believer in developing a life worth living otherwise it's going to be hard to stay clean you can't get clean off of drugs and then be in a relationship you hate with a job that you hate uh, living in a place that you hate and having friends that you despise and think that you're gonna be staying clean forever you know (laughs) normal people drink in those circumstances (laughs) like what do you expect us to do right Right. well uh so what's next for you Where, where does it where do you go from here where do you see the Where do you see the organization five years from now? Let's say. I'm hoping I'd like to have the full full level of care. I'd like to have detox residential, 
PHP, IOP, outpatient recovery coaching, the full continuum of care. So you're literally, you can be with us for a year plus and there's nothing that we don't offer. So we're a, a complete one-stop shop and I'd like to, to continue to, to grow these businesses so we can continue to employ more people. But I think my next path when my spirit's calling out to is, is um, I want to work with the youth. I want to do a mentorship with young adults, especially boys. Because I think back on my young version of myself, if there was someone outside of like that component that I could have communicated some of that like anger or emotion that I was experiencing, yeah, um, it could have maybe changed the course. Who knows? And I, I'm like, that's where I'm calling. That's where I'm being drawn to next. Like not necessarily like the kids that they may not be struggling with anything other than a broken home or a fatherless relationship or their dad's in prison or they don't have mentors or whatever. I, I want to focus in on that for uh, just because the best way to prevent what what's happening now with the epidemic is, is to start when they're young to make sure that they get the information when they're young and, and not like the information like don't do drugs, the information of like it's okay to feel emotion, it's okay to cry, it's okay to communicate, it's okay to be vulnerable, like the necessary like stigma of what men are, what we're supposed to be and all that, which is so hard to break through the false pride and ego thing that we set for ourselves. But to, to be able to mold the youth into embracing that part of themselves and understanding the, the benefit of that. Right, but we'll see. I did. I have one more question for you, and I meant to ask it earlier. Is there anything from a policy perspective that impedes you and your organization from um, providing the kind of services you'd like to provide? So, is there some? Are there laws? Are there um, uh, government agencies that kind of? Are there things that that somebody could you know that that could be changed in the policy space that would make it easier for you to to provide services? Oh, for sure. There's not a lot of money, and so the reason why there's not a lot of these specific places is because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of money for it, right? There's not a lot of money you can make. Uh, the government gets behind, and this is my this is my one little rant. So we have a pharmaceutical epidemic based off of, so the epidemic was stemmed from a pharma, pharmaceutical problem. If you do the research, you see what Purdue Pharma did. Um, it was heinous. And, and that literally s spread this thing like wildfire, which eventually led to what, what's happening now with the death epidemic because heroin is now fentanyl. And, and it all stemmed from an opioid epidemic, which led to the fentanyl epidemic now. And uh, so now the, the, the solution to that is pharmaceutical once again, which the pharmaceutical companies have created a synthetic opioid called buprenorphine, which is also known as Suboxone, which if you look at statistics and data through clinicians and through doctors, they'll say complete abstinence doesn't work because you can't track me because I'm anonymous, right? And they'll say this does work because we have data because you've been on the Suboxone Methadone Clinic for X amount of time. And, the, and, and the, the message that's being pushed out is the way to be off of drugs is to be on other drugs, but they're provided by us. And it's not that I don't believe in Suboxone. I don't believe in methadone. I don't believe it's the long-term solution. I believe that it should be a stepping stone or a short path that eventually leads you to the stuff that I believe in that is true freedom because ultimately 
you're still reliant on a substance. If you take someone that's on methadone, someone's on suboxone and you take that suboxone and methadone from them and you give them about six hours, they're gonna start getting the physical convulsions and the sickness like they once got from the heroin. Although even worse now, because there's a longer half-life in both those medications. Fentanyl actually leaves your system quicker. So all the money's being put into that from the state. More, more prescribers to prescribe more medication, to prescribe more drugs that are the solution for more drugs. And you wouldn't believe the amount of people that come into this place and they're coming from just a normal hospital and the doctor or their primary care has them on more drugs legally than they were on when they were on the street. They're just in different names and forms and they have cases of it. And I wish they'd get behind just our, our philosophies, right? It's the community connection, it's, it's a, to invest more, more time and money into the safe housing space, the, the treatment space, because it does work, and into the opportunity, right? Like the, like the workforce place now is incentivizing, Nashua is now incentivizing businesses to hire addicts, and they're giving them stipends. Like for, that's awesome. That's the first thing that I heard about this. One of the few things that, like, that they're doing, like that's awesome. Like that's, like you get to, not only they'll pay for travel, they'll pay for training, the state, and they'll, they'll give you $4,000 to give the opportunity. That's huge. More of that, right? More of that instead of just drugging up someone that wants to not be drugged up more. Chris, thank you so much for sharing your, thank your, you so your much. story with me. Absolutely. I appreciate this. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community and we'll talk with you again soon.